it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back, my beautiful listeners. Season 3, Episode 3, Melissa Falavino. We got a chance to sit down and talk about her essay collection, Tomboy Land, nearly a year after it was born. But I am so thrilled we got the chance. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And I really hope that she delivers on her promise to do an episode mystery science theater-esque where we watch Twister. (laughs) Anyway, thank you guys. Um, I've received some subscriptions, some monetary support. I was able to purchase a domain to start a website for the podcast help keep you all in the loop in a little bit more interactive way. So keep an eye out for that soon. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Why do you write? Yes, that is a great (laughs) and incredibly difficult question. Um, I feel like it's there's like an overused line in response to this question, which is, I write because I have to. I'm oh. sure a lot of people say that. Um, yeah. I have heard a lot of people say that. Um, but it's true. I mean, I think there have been times in my life where I have not written. Um, and I always come back to it. I always have to come back to it. It always compels me back, you know? Um, so even if I really try my best to not write, <laughs> it always mm-hmm. sort of calls me back. Um, so that's one element. Um, and I think the other is just that writing for me is a way to make sense of my own life and the world and the questions I have about it and the experiences I've had. Um, the essays I write in particular, but even in the fiction I write, it's it's all it's all a way for me to figure something out or, or make sense of something or even just ask questions more fully than I have before. Yeah. Um, it's been almost a year since Tomboy Land came out, right? Yep. That's yep, it's crazy. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so how, how has that year been? I mean, and what was it like publishing during COVID? Um, the year has been remarkably good. Uh, you know, it, it, I would say highs and lows, you know, I, I don't have a ton of, um, because my first book, I don't have really anything to compare it to, but, you know, I did have a dream about what 
publishing my debut book would be like. And Mm -hmm. that dream involved what was already kind of in in the works, a tour. I was going to go all over the place and do a bunch of readings and do events and do conferences and, you know, really get out there in the world and promote this thing. And I was ready to do that. And the events were scheduled. Um, And obviously that didn't happen. And that was pretty crushing. Um, I think that uh, for a while, especially, I was like pretty devastated, a little heartbroken and had to make do with virtual events. Um, but what happened was that, you know, people who normally I think wouldn't have been able to come to any of my events were able to come. And so family and friends from all over the country and the world were able to tune in to my zoom readings and hear me read for the first time ever, you know, and be a part of that. And that was super special. Like it, it was really cool to be, to see a hundred people in a zoom room, you know, rather than some big event in New York or Wisconsin or something, you know, that I was hoping for, it was probably more people than it would have been otherwise. Um, Right. And so that felt pretty cool. And I was grateful for that. Um, And I think the book also got, I mean, it got, it got so much more attention than I thought it would. You know, I, I really didn't know, how it was going to do, who was going to pay attention. And I don't know if it was just people were reading, people were looking for new work, people were bored, you know, what, you know whatever the confluence was. Like it got a ton of attention. It had it got a lot of readers. It sold a decent number of copies. It got reviewed in outlets. I had no, you know, plans to be reviewed in. So <laughs> um, <laughs> in that respect, it went a lot better than I thought it would. Yeah, I don't. I I think it wasn't so much people were bored as much as we had a lot more time to read. Truth, yes. <laughs> but yeah, way. what you said was it's kind of the you know what I hear from a lot of guests is like it was crushing to publish during COVID, but also there's this new way of doing things that was really powerful. And yeah, I just find that interesting. So. Yeah. And I feel like it might change the way we do things. You know, I think that virtual events will continue to be a thing for a long time. Um, yeah. And I think that's great in a lot of ways. It's kind of nice for me. I don't, I mean, or introverts in general who have to mm-hmm. psych themselves up to go out where you can just pop in from, you know, your living room and Yes. You know, experience. Well, yeah. The downside of that that I have I've realized is like the the worst part about the Zoom tour was like <laughs> I would do an event and be really stoked and be really happy and all you know see all these names and be like in the chat and see mm-hmm. faces if it was a Zoom event where you you know can see faces and then the event would end and then I was just alone in my living room. <laughs> That's a like, good oh, point. Yeah. What a bummer. And. <laughs> <That's laughs> You don't really hear clapping or anything when no you're on clapping. Zoom. No, once it's, in a while, they'll do like the, okay, everybody unmute yourselves and clap. Yeah. But, you know, otherwise it's just like the crowd cast ends and then you're just like crickets. Yeah, yeah your, that's weird. In your living room. <laughs> Hadn't thought about that. That's yeah. got to be weird. Downside, for sure. Yeah. Um. So, okay. So this book, I feel like we have... A scary amount of things in common the gender stuff the sports the we're both musicians and writers 
Um, I'm wondering kind of where does writing this book kind of fit into the context of your life and all of your <laughs> multi-talent kind of, you know, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'll always happy to um intersect with a person who shares um these experiences and um so, wait till you hear yeah. about my um, experience with uh twister oh my god uh, <laughs> we can do a whole podcast on that I know. <laughs> <laughs> I um, so i guess like it's writing has always been it you know writing has always been the the thing um <clears throat> i've been writing since i was really small. I used to, I used to write little chapbooks. I used to write and draw comic books. I, my mom recently sent me these like little bound books that I made mm. when I was a really small kid. And writing was always the thing that I was doing and wanted to do. And all of the other kind of creative components of my life came after and were, have been woven throughout and music is probably the oldest one of those you know I started mm -hmm. playing music when I was I don't know eight something like that and yeah. um and that it's always been a part of my life you know whether it was like I was the a band nerd in in school yep. um <laughs> you know and uh marching band jazz band orchestra all the bands um I was in if we had a band <laughs> Same. Somewhere out there, there's a picture of me in my marching band uniform. Uh, yeah. Dope. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I took a few years off from music when I was living in Wisconsin after college. Um, I, I played in the pep band at, at UW-Madison for a year, um, but then really didn't play music after that for a while. And uh, when I moved to New York, I started again in earnest and playing in bands and um, rock bands. And I played in a kind of a soul um, funk band, a Motown band. Um, and that really became a huge part of my life. The whole, the scene that I sort of lived in for a good six or seven years of my life here in New York was, mm. was one that was pretty defined by music and all of my friends who made music. And we had a little crew and we played in each other's bands and we played gigs all over the city. Um, and in, in that time writing kind of took a little bit of a back burner cause I was recording a record with my band and, playing yeah. all these shows and um and then as it seems like it always happens you know people move people have families they get out of new york and then i was like okay back to writing you know right and really then kind of when that happened really returned uh with some with with the, i think even more dedication than i had had to my book which i'd been kind of slowly working on for many years mm -hmm. um so they it's really i think they like the music and writing really inform each other. And mm -hmm. what I love about playing music is that it's, it's a group effort. Being in a band is so much different than writing when you're just like solo at your desk. Mm. It's so isolating and it's so like, it's just you and those words and that laptop or whatever. And then when I get into a room of people and we're making music together and we're feeding off of each other and, finding energy and writing together. Yeah. It's this like really magical collaborative effort. And I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's a good an antidote to, to writing. Right. Yeah. It's like a break almost. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not like all on me, you know, I just like, we're, we're doing this together. We're 
finding the parts that shine and that work together. We're, we're finding the moments that fail together, you know, we're like, right. It feels us. like less of a, less of a labor almost. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for me it was definitely more fun, and I and I played music with people for whom music was the thing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I was always like, let me write harmonies to your melody. Let me, you know, play backup. Let me just be in your band and add the things that I that I can add. But I don't want to be front and center. I don't want right. to. It's not my project. It's ours, right. you know, or yeah. I'm part of your project. Yeah. So it was always writing. Were there times? you know, in, cause this is kind of, the collection kind of details coming of age, almost like it sounds corny, mm -hmm. but I feel like it's almost like a healing journey of sorts. And, um, mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah. Were there times throughout adolescence, young adulthood where you took really long breaks besides, you know, when you went to New York and you were doing music from writing? Or where it really, you know, I think about growing up, like, and we have a lot in common about as far as how we handled trauma um, mm -hmm. and kind of the things that our bodies did to, to cope with trauma. And there were just, you know, years for me where it was just like drinking or, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, where writing just didn't happen. Did that ever happen for you? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Um, definitely in those years in college when I was, God knows what I was doing. I was, <laughs> I was killing myself, honestly, you know, um, in more ways than one. And, you know, I think back on those years and I, I can barely remember them mostly because I think I was so drunk all the time. Um, and because of the way that trauma works, you know, mm -hmm. um, I was certainly writing because I was taking English classes and I was taking writing classes at the university, but I was for so many years, I was, I was really not present for my college experience, which is indicative when you look at my transcripts and I almost dropped out <laughs> because I was on academic probation for like two years. Right. Um, and I, I think that I was probably writing, but I was writing shit you know i was writing bad poetry and yeah. <laughs> stuff that's probably hugely embarrassing that hopefully no one will ever dig up <laughs> um but i do remember every time there was a period of silence for in writing for me i i there's always that moment where i come back to it and i remember you know i had been taking these creative writing classes in college and like kind of you know putting minimal minimal effort into the work um and then when i took my first creative nonfiction class that was like something opened up for me you know because i've been mm. writing poetry and fiction because that's what i thought you did and had to do and then i took a class called creative nonfiction, and was like what was what is this you know <laughs> yeah. and um discovered essays and discovered personal narrative and like cultural reportage with first person, you know, yeah. narrative in it. And I was just like, so in love so quickly. And that kind of reignited my passion for writing. And I really went off, you know, like I, I just kind of dove into that and, um, and, uh, started writing for the, um, alt weekly in Madison at the time, Isthmus, um, which is mm -hmm. still around, just not in print. Um, and that kind of was my my diving board. So I returned to it, and and I think 
you know, when I was even younger in high school, certainly there were times I wasn't writing, you know, I was always journaling. I was always writing bad poetry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was writing you know, like really terrible song lyrics. Um, but I, again, when I look <laughs> back on those years, it's not like writing was, I don't think I took it that seriously. It was just something I did. Right. I feel like, so you, with, with being in North Carolina for the, um, the teaching gig and everything, are you working on the next book? Yeah. I am. <laughs> um, so part of this job in North Carolina that I just wrapped up, um, it was a great fellowship where I taught one class um, each semester and then I basically wrote and um, it's given, it's called the Keenan writer, visiting writer. And um, mm -hmm. it's typically given to people who have published one book and they're working on their second. Um, and so that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, and I was working on a novel while I was there. Um, so I'm now in that stage where I'm like, okay, I guess I have a novel. We'll <laughs> see if it sells. Right. <laughs> no idea. Um, here's hoping. Crossing yeah. my fingers. Um, but I, I also have a, another nonfiction collection um, that's been percolating and that I started outlining um, too. So that'll be next. Yeah. So I, I kind of finished a first draft of a memoir or a collection I don't know what it's going to turn into at this point but I after I wrote that I just like stopped writing like I had to step away from mm -hmm. it and at this point it's yeah. been a few believe it or not a few years since I've like yeah. worked on it seriously mm -hmm. what what do you say to that or like yeah. what I mean, what's your writing routine look like if you have one or, you know? Yeah. Well, because this is audio, um, listeners can't see that I was like shaking my head vigorously <laughs> when you said I have to take, or like nodding my head vigorously when you said <laughs> we're taking a break. Because I feel what I would say to that is that that is so like critically important, especially when we're writing nonfiction, like personal nonfiction, memoirs, mm -hmm. personal essays. At a certain point, especially when we're writing about trauma and hard shit, you know, like you have to take a break. It's part of the process. You have to step away from it. And I feel like your body and your mind both tell you when you have to. And yeah. I think in the same way, they tell you, they'll tell you when, when they're ready to return to it. And yeah. that definitely happened to me when I was writing this book. It took, it took me 10 years to write this book because not, not least because of that part of the process you know I was writing this essay switch hitter which was one of the most vulnerable and dramatic pieces in this book and I had to like put it in the drawer and not look at it for a couple of years I didn't even know if it was going to make it into the book I was like I can't with this you know I cannot look at this anymore um it was really really rough but I think both for your own mental health and physical health, but also for the, for the, you know, in favor of the craft, taking mm -hmm. that break and then returning to it when you've had that time off, when you've had that distance, you're able to see it in a new light. I think you're able to see it without all of that, like attendant grief mm -hmm. or trauma attached. You can look at it like it's art and not just this traumatic thing that happened or your life, right. you know? Um, so I always tell 
anyone who's writing creative nonfiction, particularly personal, deeply personal nonfiction, like take breaks, take many breaks, you know, mm -hmm. you'll return to it when you're ready. Um, yeah. It's just so important. Um, and I think sometimes like the nature of the publishing industry, like works against that. They're like, you have to publish, you've got to, you right. know, you've got to be placing things, you've got to be doing this. And it's like, you, you know, that, <laughs> that's just anathema to, to, to what we actually have to do. The work we have to do as nonfiction writers. And honestly, I think that's why I ended up writing a novel after I finished this book. Cause I was like, right. I need a break from nonfiction, you know, I need a break from my yeah. life. And I, and I yeah. discovered all this like freedom in fiction and that act, this book actually started out of a, an essay that I thought I was writing, you know, about mm -hmm. my own experience. And then I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> <laughs> I think fiction. And then I was like, yeah. Oh my God, I can do whatever I want, you know, yeah. and, uh, super liberating and, not my life, you know, it's informed right. by my own experiences. And I, I think my, my protagonist is based loosely on me, but um, it became its own thing. And that was, yeah. that's been really fun and a really nice break <laughs> from, from nonfiction. Yeah. Well, I talk about a lot about too, like recently kind of wanting to, to take the memoir manuscript and turn into like a collection of short stories instead. And when I started to think mm -hmm. of it like that, yeah, it was like, Oh, now I can access this material without having a fucking nervous breakdown every yes. other. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of an in between. And I do want to talk about switch hitter, but before that, um, when you are on, when you're in the zone and you're working on working on a book or whatever, what does that look like for you? Even like just day to day. Yeah, um, I am a creature of habit. I love a routine. Um, and mm -hmm. my routine is typically, at least for the past two years, um, since I left a nine to five office job, um, has been like, I get up relatively early, I make a pot of coffee, I read. Um, that's the first thing I do in the morning. Um, and drink my first cup of coffee or two with with a book, whatever it is that I'm, I'm reading at the time, or, you know, sometimes it's a novel, sometimes it's an essay collection. Sometimes it, it, um, mirrors kind of the form that I'm working on. Sometimes it doesn't, but I just read because that for me really kicks off, um, that part of my brain that wants to create and wants to write. Um, it's, it's really actually hugely important for me to have that every morning so that mm -hmm. I can get into that zone and into that space without it, I can't. It's like I've, I've tried in many ways to to force myself into the space of writing without having that kind of immersive reading. And I just can't. So mm -hmm. I'll read for, um, you know, an hour or two, depending on how much time I have that day, um, and caffeinate, fully caffeinate, and then <laughs> sit down at my desk and I write. And, and some days I write for an hour and some days I write for three hours. And it, it totally depends on, you know, my situation at the time I've been teaching the past two years. Um, so whatever my teaching schedule looks like, um, so that, that amount of time that I write will change, but I try to do it every day. Um, sometimes I take weekends off and tr try to treat it like a, you know, mentally like a, like I have a nine to five job, you know, like mm -hmm. these are my work days and this is my weekend. It doesn't always yeah. happen. You know, some, some weekends I want to write some weekends I'm on a deadline or I feel like I have to. Um, 
but that's about it. And then, and then I use the rest of the day to do whatever else I have to do with work or life, you know, um, mm -hmm. whether it's teaching or a freelance piece or an interview, um, or like, you know, tending to life. Right. Which we always have to do. <laughs> Unfortunately. All Unfortunately. Right. <laughs> um, the finger of God going to the beginning here. I do you ever get annoyed when you read something that you're like, that was my story to tell. <laughs> um, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. It wasn't fully my story, but this obsession with uh, the weather and the movie Twister, that that happened to me. Like the movie Twister like changed my life and I was going to yeah. become... I was going to become a storm chaser and I became obsessed with meteorology and, and Helen Hunt. <laughs> um, God, as you do. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it was interesting at first that you kind of idolized uh, the character Bill, but then mm -hmm. ultimately you're like, no, it's all about Joe. And um, right. obviously. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, though, I feel like that piece kind of talks about how in the Midwest, you know, things are not talked about <laughs> and mm -hmm. silence, repression, all that good stuff. Um, and that seems mm -hmm. to be kind of a theme throughout a lot of your essays. But it reminded me, so I grew up in, in suburban New Jersey, in South okay. Jersey, which is a lot of farmland and, you know, mm -hmm. um, so it's similar. It's not the Midwest, mm -hmm. but it's similar. So reading through a lot of your essays, I was like, God, I can relate to that. The gender stuff, the softball, the all of it, really. So I started yes. to wonder, how do you think like this, this silent repression um, of the Midwest really differs from other regions in the U.S., or if it does? Why is it specifically that's, Midwest? Yeah. That's a really great question. And honestly, I think since this book came out, one of the things I have learned is that it is not that different. You know, I yeah. feel like because it's what I experienced, I really thought of the Midwest as having this particular affinity to silence and stoicism and mm -hmm. repression and you know we do the work we don't talk about anything other than the work or the weather um and and i think you know i i sort of knew this on some level but what has been made really more clear to me in a really exciting way honestly because people have been writing me since reading this book and saying like i grew up in new jersey or i grew up in pennsylvania or i grew up in like the Pacific Northwest and read your book and, and it, it's, it resonated so deeply. Um, the, the kind of connective tissue is less about geography, I think, and more about class and, you yeah. know, the ways we, the ways we grow up and the work that our families do and our socioeconomic status and that there's this culture of, um, silence and, of not talking about things because we don't ever learn how, and, and it's not something that people are, are, are trained or taught to do um, as opposed to, I think people who have more 
resources who can do things like go to therapy and mm-hmm. grow up in families where people do that and they talk about things and they try to get to the center of of problems they try to solve problems rather than you know just kind of um living in them um but you know my dad grew up in jersey he grew up in orange and um which is a very different kind of upbringing, you know, regionally. And, um, you know, he was, he was sort of grew up with Newark in the background and New York city in the background. And he spent a lot of time in New York city and, but, but grew up in this like really working class Italian part of New Jersey in, in orange. And, um, the way that his family kind of developed and, and learned to do things is very similar to the way that my mom's side of the family in rural Wisconsin learn to do things you know mm-hmm. we do the work and and that's what we do and that's what we talk about and because because you don't have time to talk about anything else you know right certainly not problems you know like you know uh emotional problems right. we don't we right. just don't discuss that so i do think that the midwest has you know its own kind of flavor of 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 silence uh, it's certainly, in my experience, more um, passive aggressive than than other parts of the country, and I can say that because I have been it, you know, and like I know it, um, and and so I think that that's part of it, and we joke about that, but it's totally true, um, and I think that when you talk about kind of the ways that people like the work that people do and how that relates to the ways that they communicate or interact with one another. Um, I think, I do think there's something particular to uh, a working class family in the Midwest. Um, And, you know, I still have a lot more to think about and ask and say on that topic, which is why my next book of nonfiction is kind of about that. (laughs) It's it's even more about um, what, work and class and um mm. uh and and I I'll be looking at both kind of my my father's sort of east coast working class immigrant experience um mm-hmm. kind of juxtaposed with this midwestern um working class experience so mm-hmm. I can't wait <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it's something to... I feel like I'll be self-thinking about like my whole life. So, <laughs> right. Um, More where that came from. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I too am Italian and Irish, <laughs> so um, nice. it was funny finally to read read some. First of all, the the Jersey Italian dialect, like um, mozzarella and gabagool. Yeah. I'm like. Yeah, yes. that's my family. <laughs> and then uh all the way down to gravy. I've yes. never I've never read yet in a book or a collection about <laughs> about how pasta sauce is called gravy and that just is. Like that's how I grew up. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, we don't have we I I really like we don't have enough of those narratives. I actually just blurbed a book um by a writer named Pat Dunn, who wrote a book called Last Stop on the Six. It's coming out later this year. And hers is a very um, Italian-American narrative, but they, um, this family, it's it's fiction, but this family um, is from New York rather than Jersey, but 
the parallels are, you know, oh, yeah. basically the same thing. You know? Yeah. I don't know. It, it gave me a warm feeling. <laughs> um, but the silence, the... You don't talk about it. I, I want to talk a bit about kind of what that does to us and our bodies, especially as queer people growing up in that type of environment and um, to cope. So particularly like depersonalization, panic attack, depression, anxiety. You kind of discussed mm-hmm. all those in, in uh, Switch Hitter. And same thing happened to me and <laughs> I I was prescribed medication at 19 but I was too scared to take it because of my anxiety I was like wow oh, I'm not going to mm-hmm. take medication you know um, I'm medicated now I'm 35 but I'm a public school teacher as well so like upper elementary like 10, 11, 12 year olds and I see kids struggling with a lot of the same stuff um, what do you think they need more so than meds, you know, or <laughs> it, it's, I see a difference in how it's talked about, like anxiety, depression, social, emotional things are mm-hmm. like part of the curriculum now, um, mm-hmm. which I didn't until I wrote my book or my manuscript, I didn't realize like I was depressed as a kid. I was fucking right anxious as hell um from a very young age and the shit i used to do to cope with that like so i don't know kind of wondering now that we're somewhat on the other side of that what would you want to say or what would you what would you wish you had had at that age or something Mm. Mm -hmm. well first of all i'm sorry that you had those experiences too i feel like it's so so um common you know and 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 the fact that whole generations of people grew up not talking about it not understanding what they were experiencing you know i write about that in that essay like not knowing what i was experiencing and just Mm -hmm. like knowing something was wrong but not understanding it yeah um how like isolating that feels and when there's a culture of silence you don't tell your friends about it I didn't tell my friends about it I just sort of like took it and internalized it and like act tried to act as happy and normal as I could um and your body internalizes it as anyone who has suffered any sort of trauma knows and you carry it and it starts to manifest in all sorts of fun ways like Mm -hmm. panic attacks and personalization and and all these things that you know then I remember the first couple times I experienced I remember the first time I experienced a panic attack like an all-out panic attack and when I started experience depers- experiencing depersonalization and had no idea what was happening and thought I was mm-hmm. dying you know same oh it's terrifying you know I'm I'm grateful in some ways that I don't remember that time very well because like I you know I just don't want to feel acutely how how terrified I was Right. Um, But I think, you know, I've been teaching this past year, I was teaching undergrads. And so these are 18, 19 year olds, which first of all, they were like some of the just, I don't know, most emotionally attuned 
uh, present, empathetic, like deeply caring people I have ever met. And that's amazing. You know, oh my God, I loved them so hard. And I've taught, you know, I taught, I've taught in private schools and MFA programs and things like this. And this is a public university with mostly almost all in-state students, some of whom were first-generation students, like I was. Um, And I'm just, like, constantly bowled over at how well-attuned they are to their own needs, their own feelings, their own struggles, that they can ask for what they need, you know, that they can email me and be like, I'm not doing well. Is it okay if I don't come to class today? Or like, is it okay if I don't turn my camera on? You know, Mm -hmm. and of course I'm like, do what you need to do, you know, take care of yourself, not least in this unprecedented time, you know? Yeah. Um, But I, I was so struck this past year by, by them. And, and, you know, what's also true is that so many of them were experiencing anxiety and depression um, but they could name it, you know, and and they were for the most part seeking out resources and and trying to um, talk to people about it, and and that was just like so amazing to see because I think of myself at eighteen or nineteen. <laughs> oh my god, I was such a mess. I was such a mess. I couldn't name what was going on. I had no idea what resources were available to me if there were any resources available to me. I certainly didn't have me- like mentors that I could talk to be like this mm-hmm. is happening. What do I do? Um and so I hope that I have been that person for them. I mean, um I think I think that I I did my best. I tried and will continue to try as a teacher. Um, but that gives me some hope that, that these are kids that grew up in situations not unlike my own, the one that I grew up in and, and that they just have a, a much more, they have so much more empathy for themselves. They Mm -hmm. have language that, that I didn't have. Um, they have resources and tools that we didn't have, um, and that's not to say that they don't need help. They do, but but they're. I seem like it seems like they have a leg up already because they have that language and they have those resources and they can talk about it. Yeah. So I, I wish that I had had that. You know? Right. I I I didn't have the language for it. That's for sure. But as much yeah. um as much grief as we give um social media. Mm-hmm. Um, around kids, I wonder how much of it has to do with social media. I mean, most of the that's a great question. I mean, most of the accounts and stuff that I follow are mental health, like you know, healing kind of stuff. And you know, you follow yeah, like one. finding community. Yeah, you know, if you're if you're a young queer kid and like you yeah. are growing up in a place where you don't have access to other queer kids like you go on tiktok or you go on instagram or whatever oh my god and like you have a community and and you see other people like you and you can talk to them and i mean yeah social media is like a a horrible dark void in so many ways but it can also be this resource i think especially for young people um i you know i think that it it can provide those communities where 
kids don't necessarily have access to them. IRL. Mm-hmm. My students it, it would makes... laugh at me. They heard me say that actually. That's so like geriatric millennial of me to say. <laughs> yeah, you should see me with my fifth graders. <laughs> um, okay, so that's interesting. I feel like so many kids in ele- even especially in elementary school are like coming out like I'm pan, I'm bi, I'm a lesbian, I'm gay to the point where parents and adults or I'm trans to the point where parents and adults are like do you think this is real like is this mm-hmm. just a fat you know so many kids and I'm I'm thinking like no I feel like it's more <laughs> Especially with the social media, it's more visible now. Like there's, right. like you said, there's language for it, and there's things that that people can see that we could not see as kids that we didn't have access yeah. to as kids. Yeah. I was recently having a conversation with someone who was like, kind of trying to empathize. I think in a in a in a useful way, trying to empathize with like baby boomers who have a really hard time with like trans and non-binary identity in particular. And they said something like, well, it must be really hard for them because the world is changing so dramatically, you know, kind of under their, under their nose or, you know, this, they, they, they thought that they understood the world and now suddenly it's totally different. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying. However, I don't think the world is totally different. I think actually right. what's happening is we just see it. We see it and we hear it in ways that right. we didn't before. We meaning people in generations before us never, you know, language didn't exist and social media didn't exist. So people of our, our parents' generation didn't know any trans people, didn't know right. any queer people. You know, and so suddenly they're like, well, where are all these queer and trans people coming from? Well, well like, you're just seeing them, you know, yeah. and, and people have language and people have community and they feel safer, you know, uh, yeah. somewhat at least coming out. And so it's not that they're, the world is, you know, suddenly changing and everybody's going <laughs> through a phase. It's just that peep kids have more access and, and, and more, and they're more comfortable naming who they are they have the language to name who they are and that's awesome and yeah gender and sexuality are fluid and those definitions and those words might change but like I just think it's so awesome that kids have the language now and they have communities now and they feel like they can identify themselves and see themselves in other people in a way that so and so young yeah um yeah i it must be connected too to that like the boomer generation and you know the kind of the working class stuff i mean that whole generation even if you think about it was very (laughs) silent you know let's Mm -hmm. not talk about what what's going on um and kids now are like no, you know, like we'll see these memes about we're not, you know, we're not weak. We're just talking about our feelings, which you guys never were able to do. And like, and we ended right. up with a fucking whole generation of traumatized parents <laughs> raising 
kids. You know what I mean? Like, that's really interesting. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I think that's interesting. Whoever you were talking to about that was trying to kind of empathize with the, the older folks. Cause I do, yeah. you know, I do too. I'm like, I get it. Um, this is all very new to them, but right. You know, is it really new? It makes me think of your, um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I, I've been thinking about it a lot this past year because my book coming out, you know, I think that a lot of people, my parents, my, par- my parents probably had a hard time with some of it. Um, but other people in, in my family, uh, people that I've spoken to mm-hmm. since the book came out, you know, had had <laughs> things to say. Um you know, and, and I had these experiences that weren't great with some folks responding negatively. And um, in general, I try to be as empathetic as possible and as diplomatic as possible and try to, like, meet people where they're at and, and try to understand where they're coming from. And so I have these moments where I'm like, OK, I get why this is hard for you. But then I like swing back into like, you know what? <laughs> like, no, this should be, this should be a teachable moment for you. And this should be a learning right. moment for you. And you should do the work right. uh, that's required and not, you know, foisted on me and make me do the work that you can't do. Um, yeah. So it's like, I vacillate pretty wildly between feeling like, okay, I understand why folks of a certain generation have trouble. And then I just get like really angry. <laughs> and I'm like, Well, you know what? You have work to do. And yeah. if you love me and you want me in your life, do the goddamn work, you know? Right. Right. Don't ask me to do it for you. Don't ask me to explain it to you. You know, I wrote right. the book, read the book, then do the work. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> yeah. It makes me think of uh, your essay, Gun Country. I feel like hmm. you do. Yeah, you do an absolutely stunning job of humanizing the right, <laughs> um, which I'm really thankful for because things are fucking polarized and mm-hmm. it's not something I see often um, coming out of, you know, writers in our community. So I'm, hard. I'm curious. I mean, well, ahead. was that like, I was just curious if that was a goal, one of the goals with that essay kind of like um yeah like humanizing almost humanizing that gun culture because <laughs> my my uncles as well same thing like we're they're you know the italian side they're a hunting family so mm. i grew up around that in the same way and mm-hmm. Wow, I haven't it's, I haven't really met any Italian hunters. I know I want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you probably don't want to. They're also quite racist and, and <laughs> Oh good. Great. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh Yeah, I mean that I think that definitely was a part of the impetus of writing that essay, you know. I I basically what happened was I think my essay started to get a little bit more, actually a lot more um, political after the 2016 election, you know, Trump was elected and I was pissed and I was feeling a lot of feelings and um, 
and my community was in trouble and and I was hearing a lot of you know I knew that I had people in my family um people that I knew growing up who were probably Trump supporters and I was so angry and I really wanted to cut them out of my life and and then this thing happened where like I was experiencing that rage on my own um, about them and their choices that I felt, you know, like so many people affected me and affected my community. Um, But then I started hearing, you know, like the ways that the left, particularly, you know, in New York, who just assume that everybody agrees with them and everybody with a brain thinks the same way. And, um, right can be really super condescending about a lot of things um started talking about in particular midwesterners who didn't know what they were talking about who voted against their interests who were all you know just like terrible racists and like legit there are a lot of people in the midwest who are terrible racists um and you know i know some of them but it was this you know it was such a reductive way to talk about people and and you know, every time the the discourse on guns came up, as it does when there's a mass shooting, as it should when there's a mass mm-hmm. shooting, it just devolved into this, like, really reductive discourse about, you know, these podunk rednecks, you know, whose guns are more important than lives. And look, I don't disagree, but it's one of those things that it's like you can talk badly about your family but nobody else can you know like and I was mm-hmm. like you, you don't know what you're talking about you've never met a person that is from the midwest that has guns like you've never met yeah. them how can you how can you talk about people in this way in this reductive simplistic way and be so certain that everybody who owns a gun is like you know the devil mm-hmm. um so I was angry on both sides you know I was angry um about Trump I was I continue to be incredibly enraged about the way that guns are, you know, idolized and um, made so readily available in this country um, and obviously around gun violence. But I just wanted to kind of like try to scratch at this dynamic, um, Mm -hmm. this dichotomy between gun owners and non-gun owners as a person who, for the most part, lands in the camp of being like, let's get rid of all the guns. I'm pretty on board with that. I'd be pretty happy if the guns all went away. You know, I would not Mm -hmm. be upset. (laughs) But, you know, I have all these people in my lives for whom that would be just like the most tragic thing. And, and, um, I wanted to talk to them. I wanted, I want, I wanted to understand them, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's not work that I've done before. I've never sat down with my uncles who hunt, you know, or my partner's father who was in the military and is in this like marksmanship program. Yeah. Um, I'd never sat down and talked to them. I didn't, I didn't know how they felt and, and I wanted to do that and I wanted to see what I found. And when I was first working on this essay, I didn't know how those narratives would, fit in with my own which is what what happens a lot when i when i'm working on something and i decide to interview people i'm not sure when i go in how those interviews are going to be integrated into my own kind of thoughts mm-hmm. and and narrative but um it just it 
I don't know, for the most part, the people that I spoke to had really smart things to say and, mm -hmm. and had, have thought about this and, and continue to think about it and think about the ways that guns should be regulated. And, um, so I wanted to include those, those, those smart things that they said, but I also wanted to include the hypocrisies, you know, just like everything else. I wanted to write into the inconsistencies. I wanted to write about how show these people as smart thinking, feeling people, but who like most humans also exist in the world with like a whole bunch of, uh, contradictions, you know, mm -hmm. uh, wearing their contradictions. Um, Myself, obviously included. I'm always at the fore of these things. Like, let mm -hmm. me show you my contradictions and then let me show you other people's contradictions. Yeah. Um, contradictions which become hypocrisies. And like, how do you, how do you find your way um, when that's how we so frequently live? Mm. So that's kind of what I was going for. Um, <laughs> it's a big deal. It worked. I mean, it did. It did. I mean, it's so much easier to just, you know, be polarizing about it. The way conservatives talk about liberals or the left, the right talks about the left, mm -hmm. it can be the same yep. going the other way. So oh, I thought that yeah. was really powerful. For um, sure. And I guess I, want, I wanted to take that, like, as a person who identifies as very progressive, mm -hmm. take this sort of wide kind of angle look yeah. at, at some some conservative folks and 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 just explore our our differences and our intersections and um see what happened yeah this is kind of what i what i want to do with this podcast so yeah you know get get it's all the work. stories <laughs> Yeah, it's trying. so important, you know, like you said, we live in a very polarized country and, and, um, on my worst days, I think that we are, uh, I don't know if it's my worst days or just like my, my more cynical days or my more realistic days. I often <laughs> feel like we are not ever going to find any sort of unity, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah. There's going to be a succession. We're going to be two countries. That's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then there are days when I'm like, I think that maybe we can find some sort of common ground. But yeah, those might be my more idealistic days. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to see with this new generation coming up that 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 is very in touch with themselves and their uh -huh. feelings. That was that was promising. Um, yeah, I know. I go back and forth between we're fucked. And well, maybe we'll figure it out. Right. Um, Glad to know I'm not alone in that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so no seg no good segue here, but I did have one more question. Um, kind of about returning, and this is purely selfish of me to ask this because I'm kind of in this space where I want to return to these past loves, like basketball and mm. um sports and music even singing dancing return to like that authentic self that that was there before you know all the shit and i'm like scared or hesitant to do mm. it 
but like mm-hmm. I, I've bought a new basketball or, you know, I've, I've made it so that I can do these things, but I s- still am not doing them yet. And I was wondering, mm-hmm. because it seems like you are able to return to these things that once felt so, you said almost like church being in the weight room mm-hmm. was like church. Uh, yes. What kind of advice for the hesitant? <laughs> well, buying the basketball is a great first step. I think <laughs> that that is key, you know, like surrounding yourself with like the the things that used to bring you joy, you know, like I remember when I hadn't played softball for a really long time and I was really kind of still in the mire of all of the imp- implications that softball carried for me. So mm-hmm. failure first and foremost, but also this relationship that I, you know, was still, am still extracting myself from. And, um, and, um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't really face it for a long time, but I remember when I like dug my glove out of storage and like dusted it off and polished it, you know, oiled Mm -hmm. it and how I put it on and was like, Oh my God. You know, it's like, yeah. like a beam of light from the heaven shone yes. down on this love. And I was like, beautiful Mizuno, I will use you again. Not quite yet, but I will, you know. Yeah. Um, so having those objects around you, I think, and like, and especially when we have kind of emerged in life as our, as our more, more full, more authentic selves now, having, having kind of worked our way through the mire of trauma um and just allowing ourselves to rediscover that love and that joy Mm -hmm. from this new lens you know like so for me it was playing softball with a group of predominantly queer women Mm -hmm. huge you know like I was no longer performing for men I was no longer worried about my coach my male coach looking at me you know approving of me wanting me you know I did not I was not looking through that lens anymore I was looking solely through the lens of like this is so much fun I'm having fun again and I'm good at this and look at all these Mm -hmm. things my body can do that's amazing you know and like really kind of reveling in the the joy of of doing something with your body doing something that's fun um, looking through a new lens, I think is important and finding communities, you know, and, and I think that that is a really big part of it, you know, especially when we're talking about sports, I'm hard pressed to like find a woman or queer person who grew up playing sports, who doesn't have a slightly complicated relationship with it, you know? Right. Yeah. And like, like finding a community to, uh, play sports with that you feel really comfortable around and you feel really seen by um that's huge it's like monumentally huge um and you know when I went back to the gym when I was weightlifting I never really found that I I was going to a gym where I I felt fine you know but I was still surrounded by men like really Uh kind of like big jockey men who were making a lot of noise and taking up all the space. And so while yeah. I really enjoyed that return to the gym, I was also just like, man, who are these dudes like making noise, <laughs> dropping their weights on the ground, grunting, yelling, like, 
come on, man. Like, yeah. So yeah. before the pandemic happened, I was researching queer gyms in New York. And I have a friend who um, joined a couple different friends who played roller derby, who joined queer gyms. And I was like, what an amazing thing that would be, you know? So hopefully when, um, if and when gyms ever reopen in a way that feels like safe and normal, I would love to join a queer gym. Right. I didn't even really know that was a thing. I know. Right. I mean, I don't know. I think we have so much, um, there's so much available in Brooklyn and I am a little bit afraid that if, and when I leave Brooklyn again, I will not have that kind of access. You know? It's like, oh, you yeah. want like a queer version of anything? We have that here. <laughs> right. <laughs> my friend, uh, that, another friend of mine, actually my kind of common law sister-in-law, um, just joined a um, queer and trans boxing gym. And nice. that's awesome and super exciting. So nice. So many now now I got to Now I got to look into this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I think that's the key, you know, like finding, re rediscovering the joy, like as it is extracted from all of the stuff that was carried along with it, you know, all of this crap that we, that we built up and carried along with this sport or this experience, yeah. rediscovering that joy and, and finding a new community with whom you might yeah. discover that joy together. Right. That's the key. I think that's the key. All right. I'm on it. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I got to find one. I'm sure it's somewhere. You got (laughs) to find it. Oh man. I feel like I have so much more to talk about, but it's been an hour already. So, well, we Uh can, I'll come back and we can have a whole twister episode. Okay. We could like live, right. we can watch Twister and just like do a like mystery science theater episode. That would be amazing. I, we're yes. doing it. Okay. And uh, definitely when your next books come out, you're coming back on as well. All right. Here's hoping. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for sitting down. And- thank you for having me. This was a delight. Anyone you said, anyone you said.